Let's open our Bibles together now to Esther chapter 9. We are almost done with this strange little book. We've got this week and next week, and we'll be, we'll be done with the book of Esther. And we are picking up where we left off last week. The, the action is at its height here. So once more, as you are able, let's stand together in honor of the word of the Lord. And we are going to read the first 19 verses of Esther chapter 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces, of the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Arisai and Eridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. They laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. Let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa. The ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested, made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and it's a day on which they send gifts and food to one another. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we rejoice. We are so grateful for this good and pure, this perfect gift that you have given to us. We 
do pray, Lord. We pray believing that by your spirit working through your word, you would transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ, our Savior. That you would reveal sin in our own hearts. That you would cause us to behold the righteousness and glory of Christ. That we would seek to love him more. To serve him more faithfully. That we would be empowered to do so. I pray for myself, Lord, as I proclaim your word. That the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Last week we saw this decree of Mordecai go out through the entire Persian Empire, served as a word-for-word counter to Haman's wicked edict. Haman's wicked edict, of course, was that in some 11 months, on this 13th day of the month of Adar, that the people of the Persian Empire would rise up, one man against his own neighbor, and they would slaughter the Jews. Kill, annihilate, destroy the Jews. Mordecai issues this word-for-word rebuttal. Saying that on that day when their enemies rose up to destroy them, the Jews could actually defend themselves. So they've had 11 months, just about, to prepare for this day. To, to gather, to train, to plan, and to prepare In fact, Mordecai's edict said that they could destroy, kill, and annihilate their enemies as they attacked them, including women and children, and that they could plunder their goods, just as the Persian edict had said, just as Haman's wicked edict had said. And as this now plays itself out, as this day arrives that they have been looking towards, things get a little more difficult for us. So far as we've gone through the book of Esther, it has been fairly easy for us to make gospel connections. We have seen God's meticulous providential rule over every detail of life. As we look at the details of the book of Esther going exactly the way they needed to go, we're reminded of God's providential care for us and his rule over all of history and all of creation. We're able to make gospel connections as we see even the queen afraid to approach the king unbidden because to do so could very well mean her death. And we are reminded of our invitation in Christ to boldly come before the throne of grace, not in fear that we will be condemned, but in confidence as God's beloved children. Not as Queen Esther did to a, to a king, to a husband who had lost interest in her, but to come as the beloved bride of Christ himself who loves us, who gave himself for us, who has never forgotten us, who lives eternally to intercede on our behalf. We've been able to make gospel connections in Esther's identification eventually with the Jewish people. And see how that's just a vague shadow of Christ's own identification with us and our identification in him. Such that that we are fully hidden in him. Even in seeing the wrath of the king being abated when Haman is executed. And how that points to Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. Even as Mordecai issues this counter decree, that's a, it's a word for word undoing of Haman's decree or counter to Haman's decree. 
We're able to make these gospel connections and see how God has issued a decree of life to overturn the irrevocable decree of death in sin that was against us. These things have sort of just leaped, leaped off the page as we read this story. But in this chapter, especially in this 19 verses we read, things get much harder for us. This is a chapter about violence. And much of the violence would fall under the category that we would call just war. In other words, it's justifiable. In this case, it's self-defense. But then things become somewhat less clear. Many commentators, as they look at the book of Esther, identify in her request following the first day's killing a particular ruthlessness on Esther's part. Even a bloodlust, some go so far as to say. As this chapter plays out and Esther makes her request for a second day of killing, even for Haman's sons who are already dead to have their bodies hung on the gallows, What makes it more difficult is the author of the book of Esther does what he's done so far through the whole book of Esther, which is he doesn't tell us anything one way or the other about whether the actions that have been taken are noble and good and God honoring and righteous or whether they are wicked. He just tells us what happened. He doesn't say what Esther did here is righteous and he doesn't say it was wicked. There's no comment on the morality of it. There is just the reporting of the events as they occurred. And so we're going to tackle these tough issues today. But before we do that, we need to remind ourselves of the significance of these events in the context of all of redemptive history. And we have pointed back to this several times as this story of Esther has played out. That that God now, through his agents, Mordecai and Esther, has given his people a way to preserve themselves. And we've said several times why this is so very important. And the reason it's so important is because, as God said in the curse all the way back in Genesis 3... That the seed of the serpent would be at war with the seed of the woman. For all of history, hating, trying to murder the seed of the woman. In particular, in the Old Testament, it's the Jews. Of course, Satan hates the image of God in all humanity and all of creation. We still see that in our world today, don't we? But in the Old Testament, it's the Jews who are the object of this intense, murderous Hatred, And as we sit in Esther, in the, the large scope of redemptive history, the Messiah has not come. The promised Messiah that we've been waiting for all the way since that curse in Genesis 3. That seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And so if all the Jews are killed, then the Messiah who must surely come from the Jews cannot come. But according to God's promise, the Messiah must come from the Jews. And so... God's people, the Jews, cannot be annihilated. As we are reading this story and we see this this sure death hanging over their head, we know that this cannot be. God must preserve them. God will preserve them because God is watching over his word to perform it. And so as we come to our passage today, that fateful day is, is here now. It's this day that's been highlighted on everybody's calendar for 11 months 
This day has arrived. Remember, Haman cast lots to determine this day. That's why it's so far out in the future. Basically, Haman said, we'll let, we'll let our gods decide when this day of slaughter is going to be. This day to destroy God's people. And the lot fell on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And so according to Haman's edict, on that day, all the people of the Persian Empire are to rise up against their Jewish neighbors to attack them, to kill them, to take all of their possessions. But the Jews, thanks to Mordecai's counter-edict, are now allowed to defend themselves against their attackers, to plunder their possessions. And so today's the day. This is the day we're all waiting for. This is the day the Persians are waiting for. This is the day the Jews are waiting for. And so we read in verse 1, in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same. The king's command and edict were about to be carried out. On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities, through the, in their cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. That, that, that's actually one long sentence in Hebrew. It's just this one long, excited, intense statement. The enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, but we read the reverse occurred. Literally, the word is, but it flipped. They hoped to gain mastery over them. But it flipped. The tables were overturned. And verse 3 tells us even the Persian officials helped the Jews. It says all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents helped the Jews. Now why did they do that? This Persian edict that has gone out for the annihilation of all the Jews and now all the officials of Persia are not only siding with the Jews, they're aiding in their defense. Well, it tells us why in verse 3 as we read on. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame spread throughout the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Mordecai now is, is one of the most powerful men in this entire Persian empire. And we read his power is still increasing. And so fear of Mordecai. Even the Persian elite. Even the Persian officials are now helping the Jews. It says in verse 5 then, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. So, so this day comes upon us, and we get no description of the battle whatsoever, just a description of victory. The enemies of the Jews rise up to attack them, and the Jews strike them down. It says they did as they pleased. Now, it doesn't mean that they were completely out of control. It doesn't mean that this was some gleeful bloodbath of some kind. It means it was a completely one-sided victory. It's this imagery that it wasn't that hard. They all rose up against them to slaughter them. And it wasn't that difficult. That's why we don't get any mention of how many Jews died in this. Surely, we can assume some Jews must have. But that's not the direction the author is going with this. We, we, he, this story is being told to us to convey a total, almost effortless domination. 
Verse 6 tells us that in Susa, the citadel alone, and remember as we've gone through this story, Susa is the capital city of the Persian Empire, and then within the city of Susa, there is this walled royal section of the city, that is Susa, the citadel. And within that section of the city alone, 500 men were killed. Again, just in the royal part of the city where the palace is, where the royal officials and the wealthiest of people lived, 500 men were killed. Commentators estimate that's about half the male population in that part of the city. Gone. Wiped out. Slaughtered. Also, Haman's 10 sons are killed. Traditionally, and I'm not going to read their names again because I fumbled the ball while I tried to read it that time. Traditionally, Haman's sons, the Jews will read them in one breath. I'm not going to attempt that. I'll pass out. And their names are written in columns as the Jews write it because of what we read later, that they were impaled. So even as they read their name on the page, they've got this visible reminder that, oh yeah, we impaled these guys. Probably on the same pole that their father had been impaled months earlier on. What it is, though, is a picture of completion. Haman's whole line is gone. That's why this is an important part of the story, that his sons are dead. It It is a... A picture of the fulfillment of God's command to King Saul all the way back in 1 Samuel where Saul failed to obey God. God had commanded him to kill all the Amalekites. Men, women, children, animals, everything devoted to destruction. And Saul didn't do it. He spared some of the best of the flocks. He spared even King Agag. We won't go over that whole story again. We talked about it a few weeks ago when we first met Haman. And so now Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, is dead. This guy that shouldn't even exist if Saul had done what Saul was supposed to do. He is dead and his whole family line is stopped. His name will not live on. His ten sons are dead. Verse 11, that very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? So at the end of that that first day, the numbers are reported to the king. And Ahasuerus tells Esther, 500 men plus Haman's 10 sons have all been killed in Susa, the citadel. Then he says, what must have happened across the rest of the empire? What must that have been like? If that's what happened right here, what must have happened everywhere else? Well, verse 16 actually tells us the answer that King Ahasuerus doesn't know yet on the end of that first day. And the answer is, the Jews killed 75,000 of those who hated them. So the king says, this has been a colossal victory. An entirely lopsided victory. You have triumphed, not only over the household of Haman, your enemy, but over all of your enemies. And so he goes on in verse 12, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Esther said, if it please the king. Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to do also according to this day's edict. Let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. 
So this is Esther's request. And we've seen this from King Ahasuerus numerous times. He's constantly obligating himself before he even knows what it's going to be. Whatever it is, I'll do it. What does Esther request? She says, let us here in Susa have one more day. Let us have tomorrow also. Now it it is not just a day to be lawless. It is not a day to kill anyone they want to kill. What does Esther say? One more day to do according to this day's edict. Well, what was the edict? It wasn't, Jews, you get a day to, you know, it's like the purge. You get a day to do whatever you want to do. Nobody can do anything about it. Lawlessness reigns. No. It's a day to defend ourselves against anyone who tries to kill us. That's what Esther asked for. Give us one more day to do according to this edict. The edict is, if someone tries to kill you, you kill them. And then she says, take the ten sons of Haman, who are already dead, by the way, and hang their bodies on the gallows. Again, make a public spectacle of them. So the king issues the command, as Esther has said, and on the 14th day of Adar, the, the, the ten sons of Haman had their bodies hanged, impaled on the gallows. And the Jews in Susa were allowed to defend themselves again. And 300 more men were killed in Susa on the second day. Now again, this, this second day of killing, it only happened in Susa. It only happened in the capital city. It didn't happen across the whole empire. So verse 16 tells us, On the first day of killing, 75,000 men across the whole empire were killed. The Jews killed their enemies. It says those who hated them. These were not random citizens. And then on this second day, just in the capital city, 300 more men were killed. Enemies. People who hated them. And the author is very careful to tell us three times here in this account... That the Jews, he tells us in verse 10, in verse 15, in verse 16, that the Jews, in the midst of all this slaughter, laid no hand on the plunder. But keep in mind, according to Persian law, they had every right to lay hand on the plunder. That's what the edicts were. The first edict against the Jews was to annihilate the Jews, men, women, and children, and to take everything they owned as plunder. And Mordecai's counter-edict was... You can kill anyone, men, women, and children that try to kill you, and you can take all of their possessions as plunder. They could have done it. They had every right to do it. The royal decree specifically said they could do it. They could plunder their enemies, but they didn't do it. And the author wants to make sure we know that they didn't do it. He tells us three times. Whenever he tells us about the killing, he tells us, by the way, they didn't take anything. They didn't lay a hand on it. So it would seem the author wants to make something clear to us in the way he tells us the story. And that is the Jews of the kingdom, at the very least, understand themselves to be doing something righteous. They understand themselves to be engaged in a holy war. They understand themselves, at a minimum, to be acting in self-defense. But really, they see themselves as agents of God's wrath here. We're meant to... We're meant to have our minds go throughout this story of Esther to the account in 1 Samuel 15 with Saul and with the Amalekites as Saul was commanded by God to devote all of them to destruction. 
And after failing to do it, after keeping some of the best livestock and possessions, after keeping King Agag alive, Samuel the prophet comes to Saul in a very humorous scene where he asks Saul, did you do what God told you to do? And Saul says, yes, I did. And he says, then why do I hear the sheep? You didn't do what God told you to do. Samuel says this, the Lord sent you on a mission. He said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And of course, Saul gives a lame excuse for why he, well, we kept the spoil because we wanted to make a grand sacrifice to God. And Samuel says those Amazing words, to obey is better than sacrifice. But the author here in Esther is doing a couple things by letting us know that they did not lay a hand on the plunder. And part of what he's doing is linking us back to this story. Where where Saul in his disobedience did lay a hand on the plunder, did take some of the plunder for himself. He is linking us back to this generation's old blood feud between the Jews and the Amalekites, between Mordecai's bloodline and Haman's bloodline. And using the language of conquest here in the telling of the events of this story, the author presents to us an image of the job finally being accomplished. This job that should have been done a long time ago. This this job whose disobedience has caused all kinds of problem. He's presenting a picture of fulfillment here, of final conquest. We read in verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. The Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday and a day in which they send gifts of food to one another. Part of the reason that the book of Esther exists is an explanation for the history of the Feast of Purim. There was some debate at that time about how it should be celebrated. Should it be celebrated? Should we celebrate Purim on one day or on two days? Some said we celebrated on one day. Others said we celebrated over two days. And the author here is explaining that discrepancy to us. Because some of the Jews celebrated after the first day of fighting because there was no second day for them. But in Susa, they fought a second day and so they celebrated the next day. He's just explaining to us how it is that there's that discrepancy in the way they celebrate. As we look at this story, as we look at these events, as we look at the first day of killing, 75,000 people slaughtered. We've seen things like that in scripture before. We know that God ordains these things. As we hearken back to the story of of King Saul and the Amalekites, we know that God ordained every Amalekite, man, woman, and child, to be slaughtered. And he was greatly angered when that wasn't carried out. But then we look and Esther asks for a second day for more killing. It would be nice if we had a little commentary from the author here. And he just told us, by the way, this wasn't ideal. 
Or he told us, no, it was good. He wouldn't even need to tell us why. He would just need to tell us that. That'd be great. Some explanation for why it had to go the way that it went. Why so much bloodshed? Why so much violence? Why so much death? Why a second day of killing? As I said, many commentators see this second day as a very concerning act of bloodlust on the part of Esther. They say Esther's been doing some noble things here as the story's gone on. But now this, this was bad. As I have studied this week to prepare to preach this passage, I have come to the, a different conclusion about that second day. I think it was warranted. I don't think it was excessive. I don't think it was concerning. I think it was right. There's a couple reasons for that. First is that on that second day, the Jews were simply following the edict of the first day. It was not a free-for-all. They were simply killing those who wanted to and tried to kill them. So it would be like during World War II, the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto having the freedom to assemble together and fight back against the Nazi SS troops and slaughter those who were trying to take their lives from them. That is not bloodlust. That's not even revenge. That's self-defense. Secondly, why does this threat even exist? Why are we in this whole situation where there's a day marked on the calendar where the Persians are going to try to kill their neighbors, the Jews, and the Jews are going to have to defend themselves? Why is this happening at all? Why does Haman exist? It's because Saul didn't finish the job all the way back in Israel's history. He did not finish the job with Haman's ancestor Agag. And so we see right here in this story, as we read the story of Esther, we see the terrible consequences of not completely neutralizing the enemy threat. And Esther obviously knew there are still many in Susa, in this capital city, who hate the Jews and want to kill them. Third, though, I think the author's emphasis on the Jews not laying a hand on the plunder is telling There seems to be an indication in his going out of his way to tell us three times that they did not touch the plunder that he considers their actions to be righteous. That the Jews are not becoming opportunistic. That they're they're not getting carried away in some sort of frenzy of lawlessness. If that's what this was, the Jews would have made themselves rich off of it and they would have had the law on their side. But there's restraint and the author wants us to know that. There's not excessive things being done here. There is restraint being exercised. Fourth is this. Under this edict, by order of law, the Jews can kill even women and children. But when the author tells us what happened, that's not how he tells it to us. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that. We read in many other accounts of the complete destruction of peoples at the command of God. But he intentionally says there were 500 men killed in Susa. 300 more men killed on the second day. Nothing is said here of women and children. And even that descriptive phrase that we've seen numerous times in the book of Esther that has gone forth in these edicts, destroy, kill, annihilate, is not used here to tell us what happens. The implication, I believe, is that the author wants us to come away with the sense that the Jews only killed those who would have killed them 
If they hadn't killed them, they were, would have been killed by them. The text also tells us that those who were killed were those who hated them. These weren't random citizens. Fifth, it's, it's telling, I think, that Esther only asked for a second day in Susa. Not the whole empire. Just in Susa. Just in the capital city. Her request is very specific and it's very limited. One place for one day and only those who attack us are fair game. And remember, it's been over 10 months since Haman was executed in his own front yard. Haman's 10 sons have been living in Susa. Presumably, they have not been thrilled about what happened as they watched Haman get executed by the person he hated the most and then that person take his place. And now here are these Jews who we hate. In that 10 months, it's likely that they won many within the capital city to their plotting of revenge, to their hatred of the Jews. And so Esther says, we need one more day here in the capital. There are still more who seek our death. I I think there are good reasons. I think there are good reasons for Esther's actions here being just, for her request being just. However, here's what we need to keep in mind. God in his providence hasn't seen fit to tell us that. In God's wisdom, which is infinite, in his giving to us of scripture, which is not not got one word too many or one word too short. God has told us what he intended to tell us precisely the way he intended to tell it to us. He did not explain this to us. And so we would do well to remember what we have said of the book of Esther from the very start. Esther and Mordecai are not the heroes of this story. God is the hero of this story. We've not... We've not been afraid to point out, have we, that Esther and Mordecai are far from perfect. That they are deeply flawed. And even if we do want to call Esther and Mordecai heroes in a loose sense, the Bible doesn't shy away from showing us the imperfections of its heroes. The Bible doesn't shy away from showing us the sinfulness and the flaws of its heroes. Think of King David. A man after God's own heart and scripture unflinchingly revealing for us for all time his sin. The wickedness that he was capable of. And so even if Esther is more motivated by revenge and bloodlust here as many commentators think she was. It doesn't change one thing about who God is. And more than that, it doesn't change what God accomplished in history through her. Even if her motivations were completely out of whack, it doesn't change what God did here. The truth is, at best, we are all flawed, imperfect servants of God. None of us are free from the lingering effects of the fall. We all sin. We all fall short of the holiness, the glory, the perfection of God. And so we look not to Esther, we look not to Mordecai, 
We look not to any heroes of the faith that we see around us in our world today or throughout history. We look not to ourselves, but we look to the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived a sinless life, the one who lived a life of spotless obedience, the one who never once faltered, never once transgressed, the one who succeeded in all the ways that we fail, the one whose, not only his actions were perfect, but his intentions were perfect, his thoughts were perfect. It's worth noting, though, why stories like this are unsettling for us. Why is it that we have trouble when we read of all of this death, why is it there's something in us when Esther asks for a second day for killing that goes, I don't know. It's because there is an absolute moral standard that governs everything. That's why. And without it, we are completely helpless. We are completely blind. Left to our own, up to our own devices, every single person in the world is a walking example of Romans chapter one. Reveling in sin. Hating God. At war with him. One of the primary reasons we see the world around us appearing to crumble the way that it appears to be doing is that we're desperately trying to cast off all restraint. We're trying to free ourselves so that we're no longer anchored to any kind of absolute standard And when each person is their own definition of truth, there's no absolute standard. I define for myself what truth is. When that happens, the world devolves into the kind of chaos we see going on around us. That kind of moral relativism. It's all relative. I got my truth, you got your truth. I got my morality, you got your morality. It's a cancer. It's a poison. It's a a category five tornado that just tears through everything. And what does it leave in its wake? Well, just look around at the world. Just look around at our nation. It leaves in its wake the sexual revolution. It leaves in its wake the abortion industry. It leaves in its wake the moral filth that we see celebrated around us and rewarded around us. It leaves in its wake a rampant materialism that once and once and once and once leaves in its wake hatred of neighbor. It leaves in its wake the gnashing of teeth that anything that suggests that there is a holy God before whom we all stand accountable and that he sets the rules. The world hates the notion of that God. The the world will take the God of most megachurches. The God who tells you you're a champion. The God who tells you you're the best, you're his special little prize, and you mean so well. You just got to keep trying. The God who's your buddy. The world doesn't mind that God. But the world hates the notion of a God who is holy, 
of a God who is just, of a God who is righteous, even of a God who is merciful. The world hates the God of the Bible. And, and the only antidote to this kind of moral relativism that is, it is so disastrous is moral absolutism. And that specifically is found in Scripture. It is the truth of God, the unchanging, unflinching truth of God in his word that remains true, that ever will remain true, that never will change. It is, it is that truth from God that provides for us the moral lens through which we can see the world around us and rightly interpret what it is that we're seeing. Rightly interpret the events of history. Rightly interpret the events of our lives. And without it, we are groping in the dark. We have no clue. More than that. More than just some moral framework. Here's the glory of scripture. In scripture, we get God. God himself. Scripture reveals to us God himself. Who he is. What he is like. What it is that he desires. How it is that he works in the world and to what end he's working. One of the things we see in the story of Esther, we see it in many places in scripture. But Esther highlights for us of who God is and how God works in this world is we see that our God is a God of great Reversals. There are reversals. That's one of the great themes of the book of Esther. The turning of tables. Reversals. Esther expects to die when she comes into the king's presence unbidden as the king is flanked by men with giant axes. History tells us of this king. But instead she's not only granted her life but he tells her on the spot I'll do whatever you want. Ask anything and I'll give it to you. Mordecai goes from being clothed in sackcloth and ashes in deep mourning to being clothed in the king's own royal robes and paraded through town as it is proclaimed this is what the king does to the man he delights to honor. Wicked Haman goes from being on top of the world, highly exalted, to being shamed publicly as he is forced to parade Mordecai through the streets, heralding his praises. Ultimately, he goes from being on top of the world to being on top of a 75-foot gallows that he built to kill Mordecai on. He just built it the night before when he was on top of the world. And by morning, he was dead. These and other reversals are, are just leading up to the greatest reversal in the book of Esther. That is right here in this passage that we just read. The line of David is in jeopardy. God's people condemned to death. It looks like should this should this be carried out that the seed of the woman uh, the seed of the serpent will triumph over the seed of the woman that the Messiah will not be born because the Jews will be extinct and there will be no people for the Messiah to come through. It looks like Satan and his agents have won. But then we read these incredible words in chapter 9 verse 1 that we began with today in the 12th month which is the month of Adar on the 13th day of the same. In history, in history, in a moment, 
When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on that very day, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Oh, the Bible's filled with stories of great reversals. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Many of you don't need to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 because it's our, our passage for our memory verses. But I want you just to hear it with fresh ears, with this, this thought in mind. Hear the reversals. Hear the reversals here in Ephesians chapter 2. The reversals, Christian, that God has wrought in your life. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh of hands. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. But you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Christian, that's it's just some of the reversals God has brought into your life. That's you. That's me. None of this would be possible if it weren't for the greatest reversal of all time. When, when the Hamans of Jesus' day and in his incarnation thought they had won. When they thought they had been able to succeed in killing, destroying, annihilating the Son of God. 
in the aftermath of that Good Friday when darkness covered the earth. When the Lord of life himself was crucified and dead and buried and all hope seemed lost. The second person of the triune Godhead had taken on flesh and now he lay in that flesh dead in a cold stone tomb. But God, in in the midst of this seemingly hopeless, irrevocable tragedy, God was not shaken. God was not concerned. God was at work. In fact, this was the plan all along. Far from being defeated, he was subjecting his enemies to open shame through the death of Christ. And on the third day, in the greatest of all reversals, the Lord Jesus Christ rose triumphant from the grave. We just close with the words of an excellent commentary on the book of Esther from Brian Gregory. He says this, of the resurrection of Christ. That means that for all the tragedy in our world, in our culture, in our lives, nothing is beyond the touch of the God of the resurrection. Deep down, in those places of death and hopelessness and despair, deep down there, there, God is at work. Plunging his providential hands into the ashes of our mortality and into the soil of our despairing world and crafting the newness of resurrection so that one day we will be able to stand together in a new world with new bodies and having experienced his deliverance and redemption, we'll say to one another on this day, The enemies of death and evil and tragedy had hoped to overpower us. But now the tables are turned and we have the upper hand for our God has given us life in the place of death. Goodness in the place of evil and beauty in the place of tragedy. Praise God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you. We rejoice in you. We rejoice, Lord, as we look around at this world. Though at times we tremble, though at times we are shaken, though at times we are filled with anxiety, we, we thank you that that is only because we are frail. It is only because we don't see the whole picture. And we remind ourselves that you, our God, are not shaken. That you, our God, have never known one second, one moment of anxiety because you have been and are and will Accomplish every one of your good plans. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. We rejoice in your sovereign, almighty, gracious rule. We rejoice that you would call us from death into life, from darkness into light, from blindness to sight, from groping around in the dark without a clue, without a hope. into walking in the light of your spirit. You brought us from condemnation into eternal life and we rejoice in you. We hope in you. We look to you. We glory in you. We pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful ambassadors of this hope to this world as it gropes in the darkness at war with you. We pray, Lord, that we would Shine the light of your gospel, of your truth, 
that we would speak your absolute truth and we would speak it in love and in humility that befits one who has been saved by grace alone. Pray to that end, Lord, that you would make us faithful as a church together, make us faithful as individuals to herald this glorious gospel of your kingdom and you are God who is worthy of all praise. In Jesus' name, amen.